morning, everyone. It's nice to see you. Our uh, key scripture this morning comes from Colossians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn over there. I'll be reading this passage for you here this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I don't know if you have ever been to a preschool graduation. (laughs) I have been to a few in my time. Uh, we used to, we had, there's, there is a preschool at the church that I used to uh, work with, and so I would go to the graduation every year that my, my kids went, and every year they would ask the children um, what it is that they wanted to be when they grew up. And there were firefighters and astronauts and stormtroopers and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And But some people, you know, said things like doctors, and I have to be honest with you, this kid said that he wanted to be a doctor, and I laughed. <laughs> you know why? Because what does he know at that age? He's learned his colors. He maybe knows how to count. And I'm glad he has that knowledge, but let's just be honest. That little kid who maybe wants to be something big someday, he can't be that right then, can he? No, so uh, these kids, then they go on to uh, kindergarten, and there is a graduation ceremony for graduating from kindergarten. And they say, I want to be a lawyer, but I got to be honest with you, I don't want that kindergarten kid representing me in court. So they go on through elementary school until they graduate from sixth grade. And at that point, they want to be rock stars. And in movies and have their own Instagram channel. I don't care if they do that because that has no relevance to me. (laughs) But I still don't want them operating on me, representing me in court, or doing any of those sorts of things for me. Then they go into junior high and high school. And then they really know everything. (laughs) When they are in junior high and high school. I mean, granted... They can't figure out how to get the clothing from the floor to the laundry basket. But they know how you should do a lot of things. And they feel free to tell you that. But I still don't want a teenager doing anything specific for my life. I'm not even really comfortable with them driving me somewhere. And let's say they go to school, and they go to medical school. And how many of you have ever gone to the doctor, and you can't see your doctor that day, and you end up seeing 
a new medical student. There was this one time where I had to be taken to the hospital in an ambulance. I really didn't need to be taken to the hospital in an ambulance, but they decided they thought I should go to the hospital in the ambulance. And the, the paramedics come in, and they're putting me on the thing. They want to put an IV in my arm. And the girl says, this is all, you know, I'm new at this. I'm new at this. Now, I'm sure she is like a pro now. But the bruise that I had on my arm, (laughs) you could see from space. (laughs) But as this person then becomes a doctor or they become a paramedic or they do something, what happens theoretically the longer they practice these things? They become better and better. Why is that? Well, it's partially because of practice. But it's partially because you know things that you didn't know before. And maybe even more importantly, you've made mistakes that you now know not to make again. Do you know what this is called? Maturing. This is called maturing. Paul believes that he has a very, very important job within the kingdom. And that is number one, to make God known, not only to Jewish Christians, he says, but to Gentile Christians. But he has this second job, which he says he wants to use all of the energy that God gives him to do this thing. He wants to help people become mature in Christ. He views this as his job. My job is to present the gospel to you in its fullness so that you can become mature in Jesus. In short, Paul knows that all of us just need to grow up. We need to grow up. But this question I want us to consider a little bit this morning, what does it mean to actually be spiritually mature? Because it may not mean what we think it means, spiritual maturity. Einstein said, the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. So this morning, as we are here together in community, as we think about the lives that we live individually, as we think about the lives we live together, I want you to just consider this one very simple question. How mature are you? And what are the areas that you know you lack in which you lack spiritual maturity? All right. It's time to... (laughs) Dismiss our kids to Children's Church, and I think they're mostly gone. So, so I have a kind of strange suggestion. Um, why don't we not be so spread out since there's like 40 of us in the room? Does that sound okay? Want to like get a little closer? Want to? I know this is this makes uh, this makes Zula very very uncomfortable to say. Yeah. Uh, so I, I know that, I know that some of you are like fairly particular people. I know that I am a fairly particular person. So, uh, I want you to just take a second and 
turn to the person that is sitting somewhere close to you and, and tell them, what is the thing that you think you are most particular about? No, no, don't tell them what they're particular about. Tell the person next to you, what is one thing that you are really, you think, most particular about? What would that thing be? Look at poor Jeff and poor Jeff, sitting them all by themselves. I know, we have, we have two lonely Jeffs. Yeah, just you, just give us just give us one example. Just give us one. Okay, so someone tell me what is something that you are what is something you are very particular about? Just call it out. Your car. Okay. What do you mean by what are you particular about with your car? That it's clean. Okay, so the car has to be clean. John, you said food. What about food? Who's making it? What it is? Okay. Okay, someone else, what is something you are particular about? A clean house, okay? Virgil? You like to just be particular in general and be precise about things, okay? Someone else, what is something you are particular about? Crafts. What, what does that mean? You, you like it done right, okay? Um, let me, you know, here are some examples, I think, of some things we are particular about. Uh, maybe you are, maybe you're not. Um, the food on your plate, can the food touch? And then how do you eat it? Do you eat categorically or do you eat, uh, or do you, you know, mix it all together? And yeah, and there's some of you in this room that are like, it's all going to the same place, bro. It's like, I get that, but come on. Um, how you squeeze the toothpaste out of the toothpaste tube. Is anyone particular about that? right? There's a bunch of middle squeezers in here. And let me tell you, you're the reason why it takes like an extra 40 seconds to get it. The toilet paper roll, the toilet paper roll, right? Get it? Uh, uh, there There are probably, if we start to think about it, there are probably a million little things that we are very, very particular about and and why is it why do you think that we are so particular about all kinds of different things why is that we like to be right so in other words let's let's flesh that out a little bit we have either we have learned to do something a certain way or through trial and error we have figured something out and so this is why we do whatever it is and we, as who have uh, this knowledge, this wisdom, these life experiences to share, we expect other people to then do those things the same way. Right? Right, of course. And what happens when they do not do them the same way that we do them? They are wrong. But it doesn't just start with they are wrong. It starts with an eye roll. Closely partnered with the sigh. You know, a trained monkey could squeeze toothpaste from the middle of the tube. It's, that's how it starts. We have, we have ideas about how things should be done. But here's a tough question that I want you to think a little bit more about, because I know what you're going to want to say. <laughs> 
when does a preference about something become a rule and who decides that it becomes a rule? <laughs> when you're in my house, when I am with you, you do it like I want you to do it. Period. <laughs> um, this is, but I want you to think about those two questions for a minute. At what point does a preference become a rule? And who gets to choose that it actually becomes a rule? I mean, if two people do things different ways and they both think they're right about what they're doing, who decides what the way to do it actually is? And that's a tough one, right? That's, that's when you go to uh, the arm wrestling tournament to try to figure out how this is going to work. We are particular people. And that doesn't just apply to things like the toilet paper and the toothpaste and all of this other stuff. It applies also to um, our spiritual lives. We are particular people in our spiritual lives. And Christianity today is fragmented in such a way that it's almost difficult for us to understand the world into which Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus and the churches in Asia. Because there are so many churches that someone could go to. If you were to just drive down Sonoma Avenue, you have lots of options on Sonoma Avenue. There are lots of opportunities for you. Uh, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity um, at the Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, they estimated in, two, in the year 2000 that there were 34,000 denominations, different kinds. Uh, and that rose, they say, to 43,000 uh, in 2012. Um, and just for comparison, uh, in the year 1900, it's estimated that there were 1,600. So over those 112 years, we added, right, 41,000 different kinds or different things. And here's the thing. If we ask ourselves the question, well, what is it that makes this church different from this church or this church different from that church or that church different from whatever? There are a lot of reasons, and, and, and some of them are... Uh, some of them are, are very kind of deep reasons about how they understand God or how they understand what Christian life is all about. Some of those things are really, um, are really thought out and, and, and religious based. Some of the reasons that, that we, that, that churches have divided from one another or Christians have divided uh, from one another. Uh, for example, the most famous division, some, it was an act of protest against what the Catholic Church uh, was doing at the time. And you may not, if, if you haven't really thought about it before, you may not under realize that the term Protestant comes from the word protest. That's what it is. They protested and they became Protestants. <laughs> right? It's kind of weird. I don't know if you ever, if you ever thought about that. Um, but other reasons, and the reasons that the Protestants had to rebel against the church as a whole were things like people buying salvation for their dead relatives and 
all these different things that they just felt like were not important to what faith is. So there are those kinds of things, but there are also other things that have divided us that are not as strong. For example, can you have a Sunday morning class? Yes or no? (laughs) Oh man, I don't have it. Shoot. Forgot to print something out. Um, So... I'm not, so I'm gonna have to go off the top of my head, but there is a uh, there's a pastor who put together his list of his favorite church arguments over the time that that he had sort of collected and heard about, um, and and these these arguments actually led to splits within these various communities. So in one church, for example, there was an argument over how what the appropriate length of the uh, pastor's beard should be. And so there was, there were discussions uh, about that and, and there are discussions about, you know, all these different sorts of things and, and all this different stuff, but we need to recognize something, you know, as much as we may say, oh, there's so many different ones and there's so many this and there's so many that, and why can't we just this or that, you know, the reason why there are so many, you know, the reason we are particular people. We like things a certain way. But beyond that, we also read things a certain way. And within the community of Christ, if you read something and understand it a particular way, that understanding that you adopt becomes more important than the toothpaste or the toilet paper. Right? Because you have read it from the Bible... You see it like this, and therefore, if someone disagrees with you, what does that mean? They're wrong, sure, but what else does it mean? Are they just disagreeing with you? They're disagreeing with God, because I got this from this or that or the other. When Spiritual matters are involved. The stakes are raised infinitely higher. And we will not let go of things nearly as quickly as we would because this is what God wants. This is what God thinks we should do. And if you don't think we should do this, you are disagreeing with God and my reading of what God wants us to do. So, is it more important for us to be right or to stand together? Now, this is a trick question. But I want you to think about it still. Is it more important for us to be right or to stand together? Now, I think objectively, we would say, well, it's really important that we stand together. But then, what is it that, what is the thing, then, that helps us stand together? If we are particular people, and if we like things a certain way, and we are supposed to stand together, then then what is, what is it that we rally around 
that helps us to stand together. And, and who gets to decide what that thing is? And who gets to decide what the important stuff is and, and what the stuff is that you don't really have to, to worry about? And that leads us to a better question, I think. A, a question that you're going to want to answer, but I want you to just sit on it, okay? Sit on this question. What is it that makes us Christians in the first place? What is it that makes us who we are? What is it that is at the squishy center of who we are? Now, Paul is about to move into uh, the practical part of the book of Ephesians. He's He's going to start giving very specific instruction on how to look more like a community of Jesus. But before he gets into that, he takes one more opportunity to remind everyone about what is most important. Because Paul understands how we are. He understands what he's like. And we need reminders about what is most important. And here is the foundation of the church. Here is what you are about. If you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. Listen to what he says. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, this is the start This is the base, this is the core that he wants them to understand. And what is that thing? Number one, he says, you have a calling. You have a calling. So if someone were to say to you, I have a calling, what kind of images does that evoke in your mind? What what do you hear? A mission? Good. What else? A gift, okay, a purpose, a commitment, that, that there actually was, there was some sort of transmission, <laughs> if you will, uh, of information from, one, from something to you, and that is moving you forward. So listen to what he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You have received a calling. When you chose to be a follower of Jesus, you were not just making a decision that was good for you. The gospel itself that says Jesus is the Son of God, that he died, was buried, and was raised again, that we might have life. That gospel, those words, the meaning of that, constitute a calling. It's not information that we just take in and it's good for me because if I believe that this is true and I believe that God's son came to this world and lived here and died here and was raised again so that I might have life, what does that mean? Then it's true for who? Everyone. And I now have the knowledge that everyone not only needs a Savior, but they can have a Savior. 
there is something that goes along with this, you see. There is a calling both to come forward and to be saved, and there is a calling to save others. And when you hear and accept the call of the gospel, you choose to believe in Jesus as the risen Lord and King, and you are promising him your allegiance for the rest of your life. And I think Paul would argue that if you have not chosen to give Jesus your allegiance for the rest of your life, then you don't really know who Jesus is. And you don't really understand who you are. Paul goes so far as to call those who are part of the community. He says, look at there, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He He's talking about himself there, but this is a term that I think he would apply to everyone. Now we hear that term, prisoner for the Lord, and how do we feel about that? It's an interesting phrase at that point. And the two words that we tend to focus on are prisoner, the Lord, right? Prisoner. And so it has this feeling of like, we're, we're like trapped into this. <laughs> like you can't escape it. But there's this word in the middle that is really important. He is a prisoner for the Lord. He is not a prisoner of the Lord, which means what? He is not being held captive. He is holding himself captive to Jesus. He is a prisoner for the Lord. Think about this for a second, okay? The premise of the gospel is that we are all sinners that we cannot save ourselves. And that if we were left to our own designs, we would continue sinning. And in the end of all this, the wages of sin are death, separation from God forever. Think about that one concept, okay? Can we escape that? No, we're prisoners to that, you see. We're already trapped in something. But then the gospel says that Jesus came to this place, that he lived, he died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. And then when he was resurrected, he overcame death. And when he overcame death then, he overcame the penalty for sin. And we become, as Kathy talked about this morning, overcomers through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That message, we are prisoners to that as well. Why? Because without it, we die. And I recognize when I accept Jesus that I, honest to goodness, need him. I need him. He is necessary for my life. And therefore, I can choose to be a prisoner to death sin and failure or i can choose to make myself a prisoner to the one who sets me free from those things let's not be scared of that language because what paul is saying is actually a really good thing 
We can be a prisoner for him, not of him, because we need him to set us free. And this is the power of the gospel and the power of the calling that we have. And because this is what God has offered to us, we live our lives in service to him forever and we do it gladly because this God loves us. But think about this for a second, okay? Why is it so important for this idea, this concept, to be at the very base of this passage? Why is it so important that we understand ourselves to both be called and to answering the call? And it's for this very simple reason, I think. If Paul wants to motivate us to change the way we think and to change what we do, we must first understand what? Why? The reason why. This is why. This is what we're doing. This is what we are about. We do better when we know what we're about. Because it motivates the decisions we make and it becomes a guiding factor in everything that we do. So, we are called by the gospel. We are prisoners for Jesus. But there's more. That was verse 1. Picking up in verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, back in chapter 2 of Ephesians, uh, Paul encouraged the church to put their differences aside and to be unified with one another. And he did that for a very specific reason. The church was made up of basically two different kinds of Christians. And these two different kinds of Christians were living in community together, but they didn't think of everything the same way. So you had Jewish Christians who had this rich history and tradition, who had... Uh, circumcision as a sign of the covenant who had all of these different things and you have these gentile christians which come from you know these greek backgrounds and they see things differently and they don't have all the history and they haven't done all of these things and they don't know the words to all the psalms and and these two groups come together and they're trying to make these people be more like them and these people be more like them and it just becomes this big, huge mess. And what does Paul tell them back in chapter 2? He says, look, Jesus has brought those who were far away near. Those who were separated from you, they are not separated from you anymore. Jesus has broken down all of the barriers and therefore we can all come together before God in a remarkable way so when you are here you are not jew or gentile you are disciple of jesus christ but here paul widens his view a little bit and he urges the church to do something that is really really important 
He's called them to come together and be unified and to put these really deep things aside. And now he says, you need to guard the unity that I've been telling you to have. You need to guard it just like you would guard a city or there because for this reason when satan attacks the church okay and keep in mind this is not a church on every corner this is the group of christians in this part of the town this is this is it and when satan attacks the church then and when he attacks us now what is the number one thing that he tries to do? He doesn't walk in the door and try to convince us that there is no God. Right? Instead, what does he do? He tries to divide us. To kill the unity. To spread uh, discord and disunity amongst the people who would call themselves Christians, because the truth of the matter is, there are, all, there are all sorts of things which can attack and spoil the unity that we have, and those things must be resisted. We have to put up a fight against the things that would spread us apart. We have to put up a fight to say we are here together. And, and so he makes the point as strongly as he can. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of who? All. Not your flavor and your flavor and, well, we're going to be the circumcised Christians and you can just go be the, oh yeah, well, we're going to be the, the, you know, eat, Temple sacrifices, Christians. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, this is not. Stop it. There is one of these things. There is one. So stop trying to make it many. There is one. And this is important for us to begin to wrap our minds around because as much as Christianity is splintered into so many different flavors, Paul's point is that when everything is boiled down, there really isn't a whole lot to argue about in terms of what makes a community of Christ a community of Christ. The important things that make the church what it is are not really debatable. N.T. Wright uh, put it this way. He said, unless we are working to maintain, defend, and develop the unity we already enjoy and to overcome, demolish, and put behind us the disunity we still find ourselves in, we can scarcely claim to be following Paul's teaching. Which This is what he means. If you don't fight for the community, then you're ignoring him. If you don't fight to keep the, the, the community together, then you're not paying attention to what Paul is telling you. And this is the foundation of where he is telling this community to go and who he thinks they should be. Which is what makes this next part so interesting to me. Because we've already said, right, that there are a million different things that can divide us. And as we said at the beginning, sometimes it's even the things that we think are from God that drive us away from someone else who claims to be a follower of Christ. 
So listen to this next part here because it's so interesting. Listen from uh, verses 7 through 13. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it said when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, what Paul was doing here is he was quoting from what would have been a pretty well-known psalm. It actually comes from Psalm 68, verse 18. When you ascended on high, you took many captives, you received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. So if you were a Jew at this time who is reading this passage, um, there is a particular image, some images that would come to mind. Um, one might be of, of Moses. So during the Exodus, God has just delivered them. Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai, and what does he get? The Ten Commandments, and he comes down Mount Sinai, and he breaks them, and then he goes back up, and then he comes back. Okay, but finally when he comes down, right? Finally when he comes down, what does he have? He has instructions for how to be a nation that is called out, set apart, distinct for God. So this is an image that might have come to their heads. But why does Paul use it here? Because when Paul uses it here, he's talking about Jesus, right? So here's what Paul is trying to say to them, and this is important for them, okay? Jesus has gone up into heaven, but something came down. (laughs) What came down? The Spirit came down. And who is that Spirit from? It's from Jesus. And who has the Spirit? We've got the Spirit. Yes, we do. Right. Those who follow Jesus have the Spirit. Okay? Listen to how he starts it even. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. He went up into heaven and the Spirit came back down to us and lives inside of us. And then, some people have been given gifts. Okay? Some people have been given gifts. And and so some people are uh, 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 apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And and people were, they have these gifts, but we have to focus on this. It would be so easy for us in our humanness, right? And Paul covers this in much greater detail in other books, other letters. But what is one thing that the early church fought over? Gifts. You have this, I have that. This is better than that. Therefore, I am more spiritual than you. But listen to what he says here because this helps us understand a a little bit better. You know, people have different gifts and those gifts are given from God and they are given on purpose. 
We have different gifts on purpose. And we are given different gifts on purpose to do one really important thing. To build up the body of Christ. We are given gifts to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What matters is that even with all of the different gifts that Jesus has lavished on the church, it is the same Jesus and the same Lord and the same Spirit who is personally present that is doing all of this work, which means that the purpose of all of it is the same. It's not to elevate one person or one thing or one gift. It is to elevate whom? Jesus. The purpose of it all is to elevate Jesus. He is the point of the entire exercise. And we have to remember this then. Jesus is trying to make us all into something together. Into the body of Christ. This is how, above all, we are to live up to the call. To remember that God is trying to make us into something together. So here's something interesting for us to consider. When we come together and use these gifts within the community, when we stick together, something very specific happens according to Paul. We become more mature. Now, here's what's so fascinating to me. I asked you earlier, what what does spiritual maturity mean? And I bet, because this is how I first thought about it, I bet for most of us, We define spiritual maturity in individualistic terms. This is what God has done for me. This is how I'm growing up. This is how my faith has developed over time. These are the things that I do now that I didn't used to do before, and so on and so on and so on. But according to Paul, what does spiritual maturity actually look like? A unified community. That is what spiritual maturity actually looks like, is a unified community. There it is. There's something that we, that we need to, you know, wrap our minds around. No matter how long you have been a Christian, no matter how well you think you are living the Christian life, All of us have innate spiritual immaturity. It is in us. We are all human. We are all sinners. And we all fall short of the glory of God, as Paul said in Romans chapter 3. Which means that when it comes to the spiritual lives we live, we are going to continue to make mistakes. And we are going to continue to put our own interests over the interests of others and over the interests of God because we are all spiritually immature in one way or another. And you might do really well with one thing, but boy, when that button gets pushed, we become spiritually immature in a flash. In a flash. 
But look at the progression that Paul lays out to reach spiritual maturity. So again, going back to verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith with the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. People are equipped for works of service and works of service are works of service for God, but that is a relational term. Okay? Meaning, in order to do works of service for God, you have to do something with someone else, <laughs> for someone else, with the purpose of building up God. And when these things happen, the body of Christ is built up and we reach unity in the faith and we truly deeply know the Son of God. And only then, when we are unified under these things, do we start to become mature and attain the measure of the fullness of Christ. I have to tell you something that I don't know if, that I ever really appreciated before. There is something beautiful to me about the fact that we don't and are not capable of reaching the fullness of Christ on our own. You can't. You can't reach the fullness of Christ on your own. Being Christ-like ultimately is not an individual pursuit. And we have so often made it about the things that individuals do or don't do. As if this person in this vacuum <laughs> is becoming more and more like Jesus. But I read this and I want you to know I understand something. I cannot be filled with Christ without you. I can't. I need you. I need you to help me be a part of a community that is growing up into what Jesus believes it should be. And I am not in this position because I am somehow smarter, wiser, or able to speak in front of people better than you. I am in this position for the sole reason that I am to build you up as well. So that as we work together, we become more like Jesus. Spirituality, guys, is never about me or you or any one person. It is about Jesus always. And Jesus saves not just you or me or any one person. Jesus is the Savior of all. Do you hear what I'm saying? You become more like Jesus together than you do apart. And that's just how it is. Which leads us back to that first question. Is it better to stick together or is it better to be right? Well, you know, what about right and how do we decide and what about this and what about that? It's unity in the faith that brings us to maturity. And, and I want to add something to that that by us showing a commitment to sticking together and working through whatever disagreements we may have we grow when we divide ourselves over the disagreements that we have we do not grow 
because we never deal with that thing or that person or that place. And we spend the rest of our spiritual lives holding a grudge, talking about the exception to the forgiveness rule. This is true. It is not rightness that brings us to maturity. It's unity in the faith. We are brought together by Jesus, and it is Jesus that we must cling to. And when we have disagreements, how does unity help us get through those things? Well, what, what should we do when we disagree on something? We should go back to the core of what makes us who we are. And when we go back to the core of what makes us who we are, then other things become less significant. More Jesus, less us. Listen to that from verse 14 through 16. He says, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Which gives us this piece that it was introduced earlier, but we're reminded of it here. We speak the truth, but how do we speak it? In love. And we grow into Jesus. And the body is built up. And as we hold to one another, as we hold to Jesus, how are we built up? In love, you see. Because God loves us. And when we put Jesus right back at the middle, we are overwhelmed by the love that God has for us. Uh, Singer-songwriter uh, David Crowder, he, he has brought this image up in several songs, but in one of them he says, is this the ocean? No, it's grace. Is this overwhelming thing? What is it? It's grace. It's love. And if Christ is at the center of who we are, then love will be the hallmark of how we treat one another. And when you love someone, you don't throw them out. And you don't stop talking to them because you disagreed on something. And you don't give up on them because you got in an argument or a fight. This is what the church is called to. Put Jesus at the center. Be about the gospel. Be about this life that he challenged you to live. Be a prisoner to him. And not to yourself. And cling to one another. Because there is one body. One spirit. One God and Father over all. And he has brought all of you weirdos together. He's brought all of you together. No matter where you're from or what you've done or who you've been. You are here because of Jesus Christ. And the other things about you and what you like and what you would prefer, 
pale in comparison to the fact that we are saved by Jesus. We are saved by Jesus. And that draws us together. It does not push us apart. It draws us together. It doesn't push us apart. We cannot argue our way into loving someone else. We cannot argue our way into loving one another. We cannot debate our way into caring for each other. We must love first. We must love first. Because if we do not love, then we will fracture and splinter into another 43,000 flavors of Jesus. But there's only one. There's only one. Jesus at the middle. People who are saved by him, empowered by his spirit, answering the call of the gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message this morning which is encouraging to me, God, because I am in a community that loves one another. But God, even in a place like this, we can be distracted and pulled in different directions by things that we think are really important, by things that may be preferences, by things that we believe in really strongly. And God, sometimes it is easier to part than it is to hold together. But Father, you have said, put Jesus at the middle and Jesus will hold us together. That who he is, that who we are, that that is what unites us. So God, may we cling to unity because we are more together than we are apart. And God, I want to reach the fullness of Christ. I want to reach that someday. And God, you've said we do that together. Thank you for community. Thank you for giving us family. Thank you for building us up. And God, may we become and grow more and more into the head, which is Christ every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, any need for prayer or encouragement this morning? You want to know this God who loves you? We invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.